0: Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com When you read Paul's letters, I hope you read to the end, and don't kind of miss the last chapter just because it's names. But if you read, say, Romans chapter 16, you'll see Paul do what Colin has just done. He'll he'll list all the people he's working with. And I'm so encouraged. This couple have got a group now meeting in their house. And uh, this family say hi. And uh, these guys help me get something started in this place. And uh, there, there's an honouring, there's a listing of all these people who are working together for the advance of the gospel and a lot of the people who are involved both here at CCM and in in New Testament world they aren't always the obvious people like sometimes you could say oh well this person in in career in uh, kind of by human terms you'd headhunt this person as a leader. I love it how God works through all kinds of different people. Some people who we might not expect and uh, i watched a film recently uh, i watched Moneyball. i don't know if any of you have seen it i think it's a really cool film uh stars brad pitt as billy bean who's the coach of the oakland a's baseball team and they're a team that aren't doing very well they've lost a lot of their players they need to recruit some new players into the team and they've got all the staff around a table discussing what players shall we bring Onto this team, and they're suggesting players who meet the typical baseball player mold. And oh, now we, we can't get this player; this one's too expensive. And they're trying to work out what to do. And there's one guy around the table who starts suggesting very different kinds of players. So uh, he, he suggests one guy who has got a wonky throwing action, and so no other team are, are taking him. He doesn't look like a baseball player, and uh, they're like, "Well, he gets the job done. Let's take him. Let's get him on the team." and Someone else who's been written off for being too old. No one wants to renew his code. Like, no, no, we, we, we can make use of this guy. And someone else who's off the field problems. And In all sorts of ways, they end up choosing the players who've been overlooked, who've been ignored, who've been unwanted. Another of my favourite stories is is, is Tolkien, Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, these stories and what I love about these stories is how you've got all the kind of major players in the world, the kingdoms of men and the elves and the dwarves and all the wizards and they've got all their power struggles going on and yet the, the driving force in the story is these like dumpy little hobbits who live kind of at the far edge of the world. And half of the main people involved don't even know they're there, haven't even heard of them. They're ignored, they're overlooked, they're disregarded, and yet they're central to the story. The the whole driving force comes through those who nobody is paid any attention to. And the reason I like stories like this is, isn't that how God's kingdom works? Doesn't God's kingdom work in the same way? Doesn't God choose those who are lowly, those who are ignored, those who are overlooked in the world? to work his kingdom through. Our friend, Andy McCulloch said this, marginal people are in the center of the story of Jesus Christ. Even if it sounds ironic, marginality is central to the story of scripture because God's always reaching out and choosing the unlikely and overlooked to draw them into his purposes. So these coming weeks, these next eight weeks or so, we're going to do a little series called God's Stories from the Margins. And we're going to look at two stories of characters who, for whatever reason in their society, were on the edge, on the margins, and how God worked through them. And we're going to look at Ruth, and we're going to look at Gideon. And these are two people who, in different ways, were marginalised. Not, not the same ways, but they were both characters on the edge. And it's a really important thing, you know, because sometimes, I think, we can miss what God's doing. I don't know if you ever feel that, that we... Um, you sometimes meet a person who you've known for a while, actually, but have a chat with him. and say, wow, God is doing something in you. Why didn't I see that before? Why wasn't I looking in the right place to see how God's working in you, what he's doing in your life? We can miss God at work if we're not looking to the margins. Or maybe actually you're hearing this and thinking, that's me. I, I, I'm that person. I'm the one who is unnoticed. I'm overlooked. People, People don't see me. Could God work through someone like me, are you sure? I hope this series makes you see that the answer is yes, God can work through someone like you, because that's what God does. So we're going to start the story of Ruth today. If you've got a Bible and you'd like to turn there, please do, Uh, or on the screen you'll see the verses as well. I'm just going to read the first two verses, set a little bit of context of the story. Ruth 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. So, the setting is, in the days when the judges ruled, we're like, One generation in after the people of God entered the promised land. It's basically the wild west in the promised land. There's no structures of society. There's no real rule and authority. People can get away with whatever they can get away with. It's a brutal time. It says in the book of Judges time and again, in those days there was no king. Everyone did what was good in his own eyes. That's the world that this is set in. And there was a famine at the time. So there was no food in the promised land. So what happened is Elimelech, this guy, he takes his family. That's his wife, Naomi, uh, and his two sons, Marlon and Chile. He says, look, we're getting out of here. There's nothing to eat. There's a land over there called Moab. Let's go there. Uh, it seems like there's some food there. We're going to relocate. That's what... Happens. There's so much in this story that, particularly when you uh, start to understand what some of the names mean, it's quite a funny story, the way it's told. And here's the first thing to notice. If you knew kind of the Hebrew for Bethlehem, you would know it's called the house of bread. So Bethlehem is the house of bread. And this man's living there and he realizes there's no bread. In the house of bread, there's no bread. You know, once I went to Pizza Hut uh, with my family uh, and someone met us at the door uh, and they took us to, to a table, they took our drinks orders, they gave us the menus and then when, when the waitress came to take our order, she said to us, look, I just need to let you know before you order, we're out of pizza. <laughs> I said, really? You took our drinks order before you told us that? Um, when you get to Pizza Hut, you expect pizza, don't you? When you are living in Bethlehem, The house of bread. You expect there to be bread. Not just because of the name, but because of the promise of God. That he promised a land flowing with milk and honey. Abundant provision in this land that God had provided. And yet there's a famine. And so you've got this man Elimelech. And Elimelech's name has a meaning as well. And his name means, the Lord is my king. So Elimelech, whose name says the Lord is my king, looks at this situation where God's promised that there'll be bread, He says, no bread. I'm getting out of here. This place that God's promised, where God's presence is, where God's people are. Stuff this idea of the Lord being my king. I'm going. I'm getting out of here. He's not living, is he? Like the Lord is his king. And so where does he go? He goes to Moab of all places. Now the Moabites have been a thorn in Israel's side. They seduced them away from God in the wilderness. He's going to a place with a reputation of drawing people away from God. This is one of those times, I don't know if you've ever met up with a friend and they're talking you through kind of a life decision that that they've made. And you're listening to it and you're thinking, this is a bad decision. But however much you try and talk them around it, their mind's made up and they're going to do it. That's a limeleck. He's going to Moab. He's made this terrible decision. But he's hungry. He wants food, doesn't he? We've got a hungry man who's looking for bread in all the wrong places. And I wonder whether this is a picture, maybe, of what you and I do all the time. You know, think of a person, for example, in their career. And they move up the corporate ladder and they end up working every single hour that God sends. Later and later into the evenings, earlier and earlier into the mornings, weekends, just consumed by work, work, work. Never seeing friends, never seeing family, doing so. Because there's something inside, there's a hunger, there's a, a need for something to be satisfied, and there's a looking to the job to fulfil something that a job can never fulfil. Or the way we lean into relationships, maybe people who get involved in one relationship after another, after none of them quite work out, but it's like a hunger there. It must be if I find the right person, then something inside will stop feeling empty and start feeling okay again. We could do it with anything, we could do it with hobbies, we could do it with home improvements, we could do it with uh, acquiring money, possessions, states, there's all sorts of things. But he's trying to fill an empty void inside us with things that never can. It's like we're going to Moab looking for bread, no wonder we're going to end up unsatisfied. Augustine, one of the church fathers, said, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. This emptiness, this need for satisfaction can only be satisfied in God. He's the only one who can fill this deep hunger in us. Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus says, I'm the bread. If you come to me, I can satisfy this hunger. This took me a long time to get my head around, even after I became a Christian. So when I first became a Christian, my understanding of it was, my sins are forgiven. That's a good thing. There are certain things it would be helpful to do now. I'll start praying. I'll, I'll read my Bible. I'll share my faith with other people. There are certain things it would be helpful to stop doing. Okay, I'll, I'll try and drink less. I'll try and stop swearing, all that stuff. But just the sense of my deep soul hungers... Can be satisfied in Jesus that I can feast on Him that I can be nourished by Him. It took me ages to get that. It took me ages. What does it mean to feast on Christ? Well, Alexander McLaren talks of it like this. He says we feast on Christ when the mind feeds on Him as truth, and when the heart is filled and satisfied with His love, and when the conscience clings to Him as its peace. When the wo- when the will esteems the words of His mouth. As more than its necessary food, and when all desires and hopes and inward powers draw their supplies from Him, and find their object in His sweet sufficiency. You know, when I was praying for this morning, and when I was dreaming of what would happen in this gathering today, it came down to this: I want this to be a place where together. We can feast on Christ. Wouldn't you love that to be what happens? And when you gather with your community group, wouldn't you love it to be a place of feasting on Christ together? And when you, uh, in the mornings, when you're doing your devotionals, don't you want to be feasting on Christ? Isn't that a vision worth having? Well, Elimelech, he's taking his family away from the place of God's promise in search of bread. And you know what? They get to Moab, things do not go well for them in this place they've moved. So verse 3, we'll pick up the story. Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah. The name of the other was Ruth. They lived there for about 10 years, and both Marlon and Chilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. We've got to change of focus now. We started by talking about Elimelech. He was the one who was enfranchised, who was privileged, who was a decision maker, and he could make this decision. We're now turning our attention to a slightly more marginalised character, someone who wouldn't have had the same decision-making power. That's Naomi, because this was a society that was very patriarchal in nature. It would have been the man, it would have been a limeleck who would have decided what happened. Naomi, she wouldn't have had much sway in this choice, we're all going to Moab. We don't know whether she agreed with the decision or not, we're not told that. But It was a decision that was made by somebody else that certainly affected her, that had a big impact on her life. It's costly for her. It's moved her away from a place of community. She would have had friends in Bethlehem. Her family of origin would have been in Bethlehem But she's been brought away from it, leaving the place of God's presence and God's promise. She's been taken away by this choice that Elimelech made. And when they get there, the two boys, Marlon and Chilean, they both get married to Moabite women. Uh, and we, we've had warnings to God's people, look, don't marry the nations around you. It will lead you away from God. And yet they do. They've made more choices. Now, the names, we, we've talked a bit about the names. Let's talk about the names of Marlon and Chile, And Their names mean sick and dying. Now, When we had kids, we spent a while kind of working out what we were going to call them. We did the thing, well, I'd write a list of names and Emma would write a list of names and we'd see if there were any names on both lists. I'll be honest with you, sick and dying were not names on our lists. It seems mad, doesn't it, to call your kids that, but that's what they did. And these names proved prophetic. The two boys died in Moab and Elimelech dies as well and they've been around there for 10 years neither side of the family's had any kids Uh, they've been barren for that time so think about where this leaves Naomi now this is a terrible situation for her like there's firstly just the grief of the situation she's lost her husband and both of her sons can you imagine how much this is churning her up inside the grief of loss that she's been through but then couple that with the fact that she's so isolated. She's not at home. She can't go back to her mum and dad, to her brothers and sisters, to the friends she's grown up around and process what's happened in her life. That's not the case. She's, she's miles and miles away. She's on her own having to deal with this grief. And then she's in an economically very, very tough situation. So the, the provision for her would initially have been through Elimelech and then through her sons when... He died. Now they're all gone. There's nobody to provide for her. She can't claim a pension. There's no kind of social uh, money coming in for her. She, She just doesn't have that. And there weren't really jobs that she could get as a woman. She would have been forced to resort to begging or something like that. She'd have been in a really tough situation. She'd have been destitute. As well as that, she's taken on a responsibility for these daughter-in-laws. She's brought them into the family with a promise that we'll we'll make things all right for you. We'll provide for you. And she can't fulfill this obligation that she's taken on. She's in a tough situation. It's Naomi. That's her life. Let's kind of narrow in a little bit and think what's going on on the inside? What's going on on in Naomi's heart with all this circumstance? Because there's a mismatch, isn't there, between expectation and reality. What did she expect when she went? She probably expected they'd find food, that they'd uh, be able to build a new life in Moab, that they'd be together as a family, maybe expecting things would work out well and she would prosper. But what happens is she loses her family, she ends up on her own with nothing. And when there's a mismatch between expectation and reality, what does that create? disappointment. It leads to a disappointment in our hearts when things haven't worked out the way we want. We all experience disappointments from time to time. Maybe uh, you're the person who was engaged to somebody and you had dreams of being married and spending your life happily together and that engagement fell through. Maybe you started a business and you thought that through this business you would be set for life, that it would give you an income, that you'd be comfortable through it And what happened is the business tanked and all your savings were gone in the process. Maybe you're the person who you set out on a degree with a a, a view of, this will get me into a career, I'll have a good job out of this. And then you graduate and two years later you're still looking for a job. There can be a mismatch, can't they, between what we think is going to happen, what we expect, what we hope for and what actually plays out in life. So here's the question then, when that happens to you, What do you do and how do you feel? Because it can drive us one of two ways. Either it can cause bitterness to come up. We can resent the fact that it hasn't worked out right for us. Or we can let it create positive change in our lives. And what Naomi ends up doing is dwelling on the bitterness that she feels. So jump down to verse 19 and we'll see how she puts it. The two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they came to Bethlehem... The whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord's brought me back empty. So why call me Naomi when the Lord's testified <laughs> against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Let's go back to the names thing. Naomi's name meant pleasant. And she's like, you can't call me that name. Life isn't pleasant. It doesn't fit. That, that name doesn't match me. I'm, it's not pleasant. I'm bitter. God's been bitter in his treatment of me. Call me Mara. That's the way she's feeling. She, she's allowed what's happened to her to generate a bitterness in her heart. And when we talk about bitterness, it's like, think about helplessness, anger, resentment, kind of all swirling together. That's a bitterness. When something's disappointed you, and I don't know if you've ever had this, when something hasn't gone your way, and you rehash it in your head over and over again, it just keeps going through your mind every day. When you wake up, you think about it. When your mind goes on idle, you come back to it, and you can't let it go. That's Bitterness. Leon Brown says it this way, bitterness is the result of clinging to negative experiences. Have you ever kind of clung to the things that have happened to you in the past? It serves you no good and it closes the door to your future. I've I've sat with this at times. I've known bitterness when things I've wanted haven't happened for me. and I've I've needed to somehow move past it, but I can't stop thinking about it. That's bitterness. And when you're in that moment, what you desperately need is to move past it, not to have it consume you in this way. And actually for Naomi it goes a step further because her bitterness isn't just at the circumstance, it's at God. She blames God for what has happened. Verse 21, the Lord has testified against me. The Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Basically what she's said is this, God you should have done things differently. God it If you loved me, then this wouldn't be happening to me. How many of us have been tempted to say things like that? That's where Naomi was at. Now, having said that, I don't want to be harsh on Naomi. I like Naomi. I think she's a, a really good character in this story. And the way she's responding to this, I just imagine, you know, if I was in her circumstances, if that was me... I'd be very tempted to do the same thing. This is a a very human response, isn't it? To an awful situation that she had very little control over. She's a character quite similar to another Old Testament character, which is Job, who also has been through a lot of loss and uh, is trying to figure out how to process it, what to do with it. Caroline Custis-James draws the link between the two really well. She says, parallels between the two sufferers are striking. The extent of their losses... Their agonized bewilderment and wrestlings with God and even their bitter laments are mirror images of each other. And yet, historically, we've wept with Job and we've criticized Naomi. I I think she's right. I think we, we do give Naomi a harsher treatment than we should. I think today we can weep with Naomi. We can recognize how hard this situation that she's in is. And at the same time, we can recognise that that with this sense of bitterness that's come with it, what she needs is to find a way through, to find a way out to the other side of the bitterness. And as we read this chapter, we'll see that the the, the way she's brought through it is through an incredible young woman called Ruth, who actually has experienced pretty similar circumstances to Naomi. She's also lost her husband, lost other family members, is in an economically tough situation and yet she deals with it very differently and I I fully believe that God is at work through Ruth that we see God working through her and she's a character even even more in the margins of the story than Naomi is a Moabite woman being a hero of of a bible book that kind of bridges us from the the wild west of the judges into the golden age of King David really she's the one who God used but she is I'm going to read from verse 6 to 18 and kind of take the main bulk of the chapter to see what happened. So she, that's Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she'd heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. They went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go your way for I'm too old to have a husband if I should say I have hope even if I should have a husband uh, this night and should bear sons would you therefore wait till they were grown would you therefore refrain from marrying no my daughters for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me then they lifted up their voices and wept again and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law but Ruth clung to her And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God, where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also. If anything but death. Parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So Naomi makes a, a choice. And it's the only real choice open to her. The obvious thing to do, she's going to go back home. She's going to go back to Bethlehem, where there'd be people that she knew, extended family, uh, and she might have a chance. Naomi's decision has a knock-on effect, though, for her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. Because if they go back to Bethlehem, Naomi wouldn't be a destitute foreigner, but Oprah and Ruth would be. They'd be brought away from their home, away from their family, away from their community. And and so Naomi says, look, the best thing I think would be for each of you to go back to your family home, go back to your mother's home, be, be there, be provided for, your parents, you'll have siblings, you can be in a budget, you'll be all right, you'll be taken care of if you go back to your family home. Maybe one day you'll remarry, but this is the best thing, this is how we make the best of this circumstance. And Orpah, and that's one of the daughters, in law. she makes the choice that Naomi has recommended. You know what, I read the story and I think that's a good choice that you've made. You've you, you've thought this through. You've been sensible. You've you've pictured what life will be, and this is, this is a good thing. The story does not criticise Oprah for her decision at all. She's making the best of what she's been dealt in life, and doing it with Naomi's blessing. The other daughter-in-law, however, Ruth, what she does is absolutely remarkable. She she decides no, I'm going to stick with Naomi. I'm going to go with her. Bethlehem but one more name to share with you we've shared translations of a lot of names Ruth it means friend it means companion and that's what she is in this moment and what Ruth has chosen for herself is a life of being the outsider she's chosen a life of shame a life of destitution and poverty a life of aloneness and isolation far away from her friends and family she's chosen that life she's chosen to be in the margins of society and the reason she's made this choice is love from from her mother-in-law Naomi And and the promises that she makes like those words verses 15 to 17 you know where you go I will go your people will be my people your God will be my God where you die I will die I've known people use words like these in wedding vows. This is such a a promise of commitment that she's made here. You see, the choice that Ruth had to wrestle with wasn't a choice between doing a bad thing and doing a good thing. I think most of us, when we have those choices, we kind of know what to do. Avoid the bad stuff, do the good stuff, tick, 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 we're fine. Hey, being a disciple of Jesus you have choices that are not just a bad thing versus a good thing. Sometimes you need to make a choice where one of the options is good, is fine, nothing can be argued with it. But the other choice is, it is radical, devoted, incredible, self-sacrificial love. And that's the choice that you're making, choosing between something that's fine and good and giving everything for the good of another. That's the choice that Ruth has here. There is a time and a place to do this. There's a call to do this. As followers of Jesus, to give of ourselves more than can ever be expected. And that's what Ruth does. Remember all that Naomi has suffered. Ruth's been through a hard time as well. But instead of getting caught up in bitterness through it, she lets it motivate incredible service and sacrifice of others. And I'm going to tell you this, Naomi was wrong in one thing that she said. Because Naomi said, that she's returned empty. That's not true. She hasn't returned empty. She's returned with Ruth. And Ruth is an incredible woman. We see later in the story, she's described as more than seven sons. And Naomi has returned with her. You know, I think in this story, Ruth is a picture of Jesus. I really do. Th- think about it. Naomi's there. She's in a mess. She's at rock bottom with nobody to help. And Ruth, although she'd ha- had every reason... Not to be there with Naomi, to stay away. She goes with her when it's most needed. And Jesus, there was every reason for him to stay in heaven and not come into our mess of a world and meet us at rock bottom. And yet he came in that moment. And, and Ruth, when, when Naomi's going from Moab to Bethlehem, in Moab, for, for Naomi as a destitute foreign woman, that would be a place of shame. She'd have been viewed in a shameful way, she'd have suffered. Going back to Bethlehem, now it's Ruth who takes that place of shame. She'll be viewed as the Moabite woman. That would have had connotations in Bethlehem. She would have suffered. She would have taken on poverty for herself. So so she took a shame and suffering in Naomi's place. Isn't that a picture of Jesus? And then through her, as we'll see as we go through the story, redemption comes for Naomi. She's the one who brings redemption. I'm going to finish up by reading the last verse of the chapter, just the one verse we haven't covered yet, verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. I love that the chapter ends like that. It started by saying there's a famine, and it ends by saying, and it's the barley harvest. That's a glimmer of hope, if ever... There was one. God has come through. The God of the promise has brought bread to the house of bread. And that's where they are. For all the emptiness that we've seen, for all the disappointment that we've seen. Naomi is now back in the promised land. God's house of bread. She has Ruth by her side and the barley harvest is in. What a glimmer of hope. And I think that's a glimmer of hope for you and for me. I think in these words... About the barley harvest, the beginning of the barley harvest. I think there's almost a symbolic, prophetic edge that we can catch on to this morning. Because we said earlier, didn't we? We're all hungry. We all long to be satisfied deep in our soul. I think there's a word from God here. The barley harvest is in. Feast, enjoy yourself. Eat your fill. It's time for us to feed on Jesus. To feast on him. The bread of life. You know that old song, bread of heaven feed me now and evermore. That's the call, isn't it? Jesus, the bread of life. And he's present with us this morning as we gather. Jesus is present as we sing, as we worship, as we pray. Let's in our spirits be reaching out to Jesus and feeding on his grace and goodness. And let's let our souls be nourished in him, shall we?